This morning, I believe we need to see that authentic Christians are both hearers and doers of the word and actively demonstrate that with a heart that is both changed and being changed by Christ. That's a little bit long for an opening statement, so let me repeat that. Authentic Christians are both hearers and doers of the word and actively demonstrate that through a heart that is both changed and constantly being changed by Christ. I encourage you to read along with me in your Bible or on the screen as I read aloud, starting in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word for us this morning. Will you pray with me as we all pray together for a fresh recognition of our need, our need for the truth of this passage, our need again for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in praying for that need, we're recognizing the only one who can meet it. Father, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ this morning for our sins as individuals, And corporately, as a people, we have and we do and we will fall short of your glory in ourselves. So we claim the work of Christ for us again. Some here, I believe, are probably striving through their own idea of goodness in order to meet your standard or try to meet your standard. I pray that you would show them this morning just how impossible that is and where those efforts will lead. There's others, Lord, of us who need to be reminded again, and it is so good to be reminded of your grace, your commitment of love toward your people. May we feel that love this morning, the Father's love that we sang of just a few minutes ago. And as we look at what you say it means to be an authentic Christian, we look at what your word declares an authentic Christian to be like, may we see Christ as the only one who ever fully lived up to that. So may we cling more tightly to him, the one who was the perfect hearer and doer, who was not just the authentic Christian, but he was Christ himself, the the one upon whom all authentic Christians are copied and united with. Give us grace to both hear and do this morning. 
In Christ's ever-comforting name we pray this. Amen. So last Sunday, Stephen preached from verses 19 to 21. And this is going to be a very brief review. And he transitioned us from James' opening theme of trials, which took us through most of the first chapter. How a trial is when our expectations aren't met with, or the reality aren't, doesn't meet our expectations. But he moved us from that in verses 19 to 21 into how we're to be shaped, how we're to be on, on an ongoing way sanctified by the word of God. The end of those verses talked about how we're to meekly receive the word. And in case we thought that receiving the word meant just passively hearing, passively reading something that's written, James enters this text with no question about the importance of action in response to the message of the word. In fact, it's part of his description of what it is to be an authentic Christian. So jumping right into the passage today, how does this text describe authentic Christians? They, first of all, are both hearers and doers. Authentic Christians are both hearers and doers. If you have an outline, that will fit in those first two blanks, or it should. This really is the only command in this text, the only imperative. Be doers of the word. And it actually starts with a, a, a conjunction, but be doers of the word. So James is showing us that the verse right before where we read, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He's saying that that cannot stop with hearing, but don't stop there. Don't, don't be deceived into thinking that just by hearing, we have the change. Hearing is important. It's critical, in fact, but it's not complete. If we're only hearers, we've possibly even deceived ourselves into thinking that we are receiving the word, but we're not. Also notice, so he tells us to be doers. He isn't just saying, do the word. This should characterize our nature. We are to be doers. What's the difference between someone who reads and a reader? The difference between someone who sows and a sower or a, a seamstress, I guess. Someone who plays golf and a golfer. I think it lies in whether that person is characterized or identified by that activity. I play golf once every six years, roughly. And it's usually at, like, if I'm maybe in a wedding and the guys are getting together, you know, before the wedding to go play golf, that's about the last time I played golf. And the time before that, I think, was also, you know, the, the groomsmen getting together to play golf. No one would call me a golfer. Very few people would probably even say that I play golf, but that's beside the point. So he tells us to be doers, not just to do, but to be doers. This is, this is to be an identity of who we are. A Christian is to be identified as both a hearer and a doer of the word. So we want to contrast this with what it would be to be a hearer only, to stop at the point of hearing and never to do. And James does so, I think, very succinctly and clearly with an illustration. He gives the illustration of a man in verse 23 who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So we've got a person looking into the mirror in their bathroom, perhaps, 
even intently, as the ESV translates it. They look closely. They perhaps examine to make sure that there's not um, some facial hairs missed from their morning shave. I missed a few. They check for sleepers in their eyes. Perhaps they count wrinkles, see if there's any food left over from their last meal, stuck in a beard. But instead of taking action to improve the situation, this person goes about their day, immediately forgetting what it is they saw that needed to be changed. It's as if, and I got this one from Lorena, it's as if you find lettuce in your teeth and don't even make an effort to get it out. She tells me that's often why people look in the mirror, to check their teeth for some stuff in there. I probably have something in my teeth right now because I had a snack earlier. So seeing a need, seeing something that should be changed, but not taking any action really doesn't make sense. Why would you waste the time to look in the mirror, to evaluate your face, to, to, check, to make sure your hairs are all in place, but then you don't do anything about it? That would be an utter waste of time. And the same thing with being a hearer of the word. To sit in services from week to week where you hear the word preached, to perhaps even open the word on your own in your quiet time, to read, to receive the word, but there never to be a change. You are a hearer only, if that's true of you. You also could possibly think about the concept of a doer only. Now, the passage doesn't explicitly mention this, but that might produce someone that has zeal without knowledge. Paul refers to this kind of person in Romans. Because without the shaping influence, without actually hearing the word and rightly understanding what the word is telling us to do, we do as humans run the risk of doing the wrong things or entering doctrinal error. So we need the word of God. We need to be hearers. I'm not saying you're either a hearer or a doer. You're a hearer only or you're a hearer and a doer. I hope that makes sense. The potential problem here is not that you're hearing the word too much, but it's a failure to apply and to actually put into application to do what the word says. We need to be both intent hearers and active doers. And he says that. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Authentic Christians are characterized by being both hearers and doers. So he, he starts this analogy of the person that looks at their face in the mirror, sees something that needs to change, doesn't do anything about it, and goes their way. And then he stops the illustration, actually. He doesn't continue and say, but what you should do is look into that mirror at your physical face, make things right, and then you're a doer. Instead, he cuts the application short, and he jumps right to the heart of what he's talking about. He, he stops the, the simile, the, the comparison, and he jumps directly to, and this is what you should do in response to the word, because we look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and it, like a mirror, shines back and shows us our true selves. The true nature of our heart is revealed by the word of God in a, very, in a similar way as a physical mirror would show what our faces look like. The word of God is like a mirror that reflects not our face, but our heart. It confronts us with who we really are before God and just how much we fall short. 
And then it presents us with the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. As a doer, we don't stop when we see our true selves in the mirror of God's word. We persevere, we continue, we see our flaws, and then we actively respond to what we see. And when James uses some of these words, they might seem bizarre to you. Why does James talk about law? What wasn't the law taken care of, you may think? And then he calls it the perfect law. So he's obviously not criticizing it. He's speaking very, very highly of it. It's the perfect law. And then he uses two words you didn't ever expect to see together, the law of liberty. I thought law binds us. What, what is this law of liberty? Well, let's, let's take just a minute and look at these, these words, and maybe this will help us also understand what power the word itself has to change us. When James says perfect law, he's referring both to the law given to Moses in the Old Testament, but also Christ's interpretations and Christ's supplements. Remember the Sermon on the Mount where Christ would quote from the Mosaic law. He said, you have heard it said that you should do this, but I say to you, and so he supplements, he interprets the law that came from the Old Testament. And ultimately, he fulfills the law. That's what makes the law perfect, is Christ keeping it. Matthew 5, again, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The true nature of the law as that which is going on in the heart, not a bunch of externals, all of that was perfectly fulfilled in the God-man, Jesus Christ. These are not laws that put us in bondage. Like, if we see this as merely a book of rules, a book of regulations, things we have to, have to keep, we may tend to think that law is only going to put us into bondage. But this is called the law of liberty because in Christ and only in Christ are we liberated, are we freed to follow the law for the first time. Prior to Jesus Christ, we were in bondage to sin, not to this book. But in Christ, we are freed from our chains to sin. All we could ever do before was be lawbreakers. And now we're taken out of that prison and we are freed to follow the law for the first time. This is the law of liberty, the law that frees. And when we persevere, we continue in the gospel that saved us. Because it tells us this one looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. The word look, very similar to what Peter did when he stooped down and looked into the tomb, peers into the dark tomb to see um, that Christ was not there. We peer down, we look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and we persevere. We let it continue to change and shape us. And ultimately then the text drives us directly to the blessings we'll receive in doing. He will be blessed in his doing. The one who perseveres, the one who acts in response to the working of the word is the one who will be blessed in doing. But even as authentic Christians, even as people that are characterized by being both hearers and doers, I think everyone has the experience of not doing. Everyone has the experience of, of hearing something, 
hearing a message that we need for change in our lives and then turning around and forgetting it. In fact, forgetting seems to be the primary difference between the one who hears only and the one who does. Let me break down, and I hope, I I don't think I'm alone in this, but let me break down how it often happens for me. I'm hearing a message, be it in a time of gathered worship, be it listening to something on my iPod or on the computer, a, a sermon. Someone is opening the word of God and faithfully proclaiming it. I'm hearing that, and I think, wow, they just talked about me. I needed to hear that. A realization of sin is present. And perhaps I even dwell on it for a few minutes as the sermon continues, or maybe it's in a personal Bible reading time, and I dwell on this for a few minutes. But within five, ten minutes, my mind, my activities are on to something else. And if someone asked me the very next day what it is that I heard, how I'm different as a result, there are times when I probably couldn't even remember what the topic was or what that specific application that popped into my head in that moment was. So even as doers, we all, I think, I'm not alone, have the experience of not doing. How do we break out of a tendency to hear and not do? And I have a few suggestions I pray are helpful as ways to apply this passage of being doers of the word. First of all, I think when we come before the word of God, we should ask for the spirit to convict us. We should ask for the spirit's conviction. Now, that might seem counterintuitive. Don't you want to kind of get through a message without getting convicted? I mean, that's probably, no, we need to ask for the spirit to convict us, to open our hearts to ways that we need to change and give us that specific application of his word. In an ongoing way, I believe we should pray that God will reveal sin before the mirror of his word and that the spirit will convict of it. The second suggestion, repent immediately. In the moment the spirit convicts you of sin, repent. You can do this silently where you're sitting, where you're driving. You don't have to put it off until a more convenient time. Don't let your heart be hardened to what God has shown you needs to change from his word. And I'm not talking about a flippant apology for doing wrong, like perhaps a child when they get caught red-handed in something. They just quickly apologize. Just, I, I don't want to get in trouble. What do I need to do to get out of it? That's not what this repentance is. This is true repentance from the heart. The spirit, when he convicts through the word of specific sin, recognize your sin is ultimately against God. And then know that Christ's blood paid for that very sin. Preach the gospel to yourself in that moment of repentance, that Christ's blood paid for that very sin and that Christ has already received the full punishment for it instead of you. While you deserve to be to face the wrath of God for that sin, Christ has already received that punishment for it. Now seek his power to turn from it and be a doer. Knowing my heart, I am frail 
and I am prone to forget if I don't repent in the moment. True transformation of the heart does not occur apart from repentance. So I had asked for the Spirit's conviction, repent immediately. The third I have is involve others soon. Involve others in this soon to help you to not forget and to aid in your ongoing sanctification. Share with others how God is working on you. That could be right after a time of gathered worship where you turn to someone you're sitting near, you turn to a a spouse, another church family member, and you just tell them specifically what God spoke to you about in that message. This isn't the glossed over, that was a good message. I needed a lot of that. I'm guilty of saying that very, very frequently. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. We don't just come here as individual people, hear the message, and then go apart as individual people going our ways. We need the encouragement, the growth, the exhortation that comes from the community of this body. Spend time, perhaps, to pray with someone that God would continue to enable your response to his word. This can be hard, but ask them to keep you accountable in doing, in responding, in acting. And also recognize that others can sometimes see areas of sin that you are blind to, sin in your life that you're blind to. Recognize when someone mentions something to you, Recognize this as a work of love and a gift of God for your sanctification. So ask for the Spirit's conviction in an ongoing way. Before you hear the word, as you're hearing the word, ask the Spirit to convict and show you where you need to change. When he shows you that, repent immediately and involve others in this soon. I think if I do these things, if we do these things, we can be more consistently doing the word as we hear it. Second in this passage, and building on this identity as doers, authentic Christians pass three heart tests. So authentic Christians pass the heart tests is the second point if you're following along on the outline. James goes on in the passage to describe through three very specific examples, or you could call them tests, what the one having pure undefiled religion is like. I don't believe that this list should be taken as comprehensive, as everything that could be included in authentic religion, but I think it gives a good overview of what authentic religion looks like. It also is kind of an outline for what James is going to show in the rest of the book. He touches in just a very few words on three things. It's almost like the table of contents. And If you go to chapter 2, he's going to touch on some of these topics. Chapter 3, he'll be talking about taming the tongue, which is one of these things that he mentions here. Chapter 4, again, there's going to be aspects of these three things that are going to carry through the rest of the book of James. And I believe that these three things, these three heart tests, directly relate to the core of who we are. They aren't just a list of external behaviors that we need to add. This isn't, um, like we heard several months ago, this isn't like tacking apples to the maple tree to pretend that it has that kind of fruit on it. We're not pinning fruit 
on our lives. But these relate directly to the core of who we are. These are heart tests. The person that James is talking to already has a degree of external religiosity. They have a set of behaviors that cause them to think that they are religious. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious. But this person is also lacking in understanding the nature of authentic Christianity. So let's look together at this first test. Do I control my speech? Do I control my speech? That's something all of us should ask ourselves. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. For the first time in scripture, James is introducing kind of a unique word picture for what it means to control our speech. And he does so with a picture of the bridle. So a bridle is used to test my understanding of equestrian. A bridle is used to, I think, control where the horse is going. You have some sort of reins and you pull on them. That's about all I know. So it's a controlling word. So a bridle is what James is talking about and does not bridle his tongue, does not control his tongue. What we say, the words we use, how we say those words, what our spirit is in saying those words is revelatory of deeper issues than just having loose lips or just talking a lot or just um, always saying the wrong thing. What we say is revelatory of heart issues. Failure to control our speech is an indicator of empty, of worthless religion. So you might ask, why is speech so important? Why would James use this? If, if I'm saying this list maybe isn't comprehensive, why would James pick this as an evidence of authentic and not worthless Christianity? Well, first of all, there were probably cases, specific cases, that James knew about in the churches he was writing to. Cases where people were using words in a way that revealed their true hearts, and James is calling them out, and he's going to do so again in chapter 3. But also, think of what Christ said about our words. Matthew 12, You brood of vipers, How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's drawing a connection between our words and what is in our heart. Our words reveal the overflow, the abundance of our heart. The good person, he continues, this is Christ speaking, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words, speech, the things we say, these are important because they reveal our hearts. Only the ongoing work of God in the gospel of Christ can change our hearts. So how to apply this? I think most of us as Christians would admit that in some way or another we struggle 
with our speech. Perhaps as, as kind of the, the tip of the iceberg, I could present this as an application for our body. We can especially have a tendency to be careless, to be critical, to be judgmental in our words, in kind of the weight we give our words when we're speaking with our family members, those that we are close to. And let me think of some, let me give some examples. Men, after you get home from a hard day at work, are you harsh in your words with your wife? Do you criticize them and tear them down, sometimes even in public settings? These are marks of an unbridled tongue. Kids or teenagers. Do I have any eyes of kids? Kids. Children, is that the right word to use? Young people. I have some eyes now. How do you treat, in your words, your brothers and your sisters? How do you treat your friends with your words? Are you kind? Or do your words show an uncontrolled heart? For each of us, that includes from the oldest to the youngest, I suggest taking time to evaluate your speech. I think it's probably helpful to do this with someone close to you because they may see things about your speech that you would not um, think are even a problem. So someone that knows you well, is your speech controlled or out of control? Is it under the control of the Spirit in such a way that, yes, you probably at times may say things that you regret, things that require asking someone forgiveness for speaking to them in that way. They require repentance, as we talked about earlier, before God. But if your speech is under the control of the Spirit, it will increasingly be characterized by building up rather than tearing down. Words of blessing others rather than cursing. I think our speech is something that we could spend much time on even this morning. But as I said, James will get back to it in a couple of chapters. So ask yourself, as one of the marks of an authentic Christian, one who has been changed and is being changed by Christ, do I control my speech? Second, do I personally minister to orphans and widows? Do I personally minister to orphans and widows? Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He specifically refers to God in this passage as God the Father, showing God's relation to us as our Father, and we'll get to that in just a minute, how he has adopted us when we were orphaned. But perhaps your first thought when you, when you hear that passage or when you hear me say this question, do I personally minister to orphans and widows? Perhaps your first thought is, I don't really know any or that many orphans or widows. You may think when you hear orphan that it's talking exclusively about those living in orphanages, those without a home, without parents living, 
Widow, the word widow may create a picture in your mind of frail elderly ladies dressed in black, sitting in rocking chairs and staring blankly into nowhere. And I think there are definitely people in those situations. I don't want to to minimize especially those situations and those need our ministry. Those are certainly included in orphans and widows in their affliction. But they probably don't exclusively describe who James was referring to. I think he perhaps had a a broader image that we can look at together. But first, let's start with a brief but important um, background throughout Scripture. Let's walk through the timeline of Scripture and see how God views orphans and widows. If you want to turn along with me, you're welcome to but I'll be reading a number, of chap- a number of passages, not chapters, passages from the Old Testament. God, through biblical history, well, actually for all time, has had compassionate care for weak and vulnerable, orphans and widows in particular, and God wants them to be treated justly. Exodus chapter 22 In verse 22 of that chapter, we read, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Those are strong words showing God's feelings toward mistreatment of widows or orphans. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Widows and orphans are commanded in the Old Testament law, to be treated with compassion and charity. Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. The people were to leave part of their fields, their trees, and their vineyards unharvested for the fatherless and the widow. This is Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be, the leftover, shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The prophet Isaiah, it's even in the prophetic literature, he talks about what is missing from the people's worship in Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. 
plead the widow's cause. And God himself, the person of God, it's in his very nature, he has promised to take special care of widows and orphans. Psalm 68, verse 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146, verses 8 and 9. This is the last Old Testament passage we'll look at right now. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And then we come to the New Testament. And there's places in the epistles, there's places in the book of Acts that we could go to, and we could see how this was to be part of how the church treated orphans and widows. They were to continue this care, this ministry to orphans and widows. Among God's family, those who have lost their spouse are to be loved and provided for and ministered to in a special, unique way. So I think we've seen, even through looking at these passages, God's heart for orphans and widows. And I think, rather than being restrictive, these are often illustrative in Scripture of people that are neglected by society, people that are largely dependent at times on others, especially in Old Testament times. If a woman was widowed, she had no way to earn an income. She was totally um, reliant on others to provide for her. Largely dependent on others. And three, they would be unable to repay things done for them. It shows much about our love for others, our love for someone, if we do something knowing that there's no way they could do anything back for us. If we act not in expectation of return and, not, and even knowing that there will be no return. So these categories, I believe, describe people on the fringes, people that we can tend to ignore or to look past. We often don't have to go to a special place to find people that are in need of human contact, people that are in need of love and affection and care and possibly physical or financial help. These people are often right under our noses and we are too busy about our own business to notice them. So in application, how does the authentic Christian, and I would even add to this, how does the Christian community of the church minister to orphans and widows? Here are some ideas. First of all, I think, I want to just speak directly to people that may be in one of those categories. That you are an orphan, a widow, explicitly. You fit the definition, or maybe you feel like it. You feel like someone who is on the fringe. You feel like someone who is neglected. Well, I can speak, I believe, with the authority of Scripture, saying that in Christ you are loved with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31. And underneath are the everlasting arms, Deuteronomy 33. Everlasting, unending, without fail. God loves you, and he will never forget or abandon you. 
Let this promise of God soak into your soul and perhaps give you strength this morning. Perhaps give you strength tomorrow to get through another day. See God's plan in your singleness or in your aloneness or feeling of neglect and strive to persevere to find joy in Christ and bring him glory in this trial. And then speaking for all of us, involve yourself in application of this this point. Involve yourself in the lives of people who don't perhaps fit your own family structure. As a two-parent family with kids, don't always be inviting other two-parent family with kids over to dinner. But perhaps sometime you'd want to reach out to a single mom or an elderly couple if you're young or maybe an unmarried guy or girl or someone that's in a difficult marriage. Find someone who has a need, someone who seems like they're perhaps on the fringe and have them over for a meal. Get to know them. I'm, I'm not talking about doing this as a project. They're not your project person that you, you know, are going to, I don't even know what to follow that up with. Don't treat them as a project, but love them unconditionally where they're at and minister to them with the love of Christ. So involve yourself in the lives of those who may not fit your background or your family structure. Next, this one's challenging for me. Don't walk right by or look past those that get neglected by society. Perhaps this is the person holding the sign at the street corner that when you pull up there and the light turns red, you pretend that you haven't noticed. Maybe it's a person in your neighborhood that everyone knows to avoid because they're just really hard to get along with. They're a little different. Rather than judging those types of people for bad choices they've made that got them into that situation, we who have been blessed by the love of Christ should reach out to them with grace. These people are most likely hurting. And part of the authenticity of our religion, part of being doers, as James commands, is being with these people in their affliction. And then in speaking of visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, maybe God is calling some of you to a special ministry to orphans or to widows. Perhaps you believe God's plan for you is to take an orphan or orphans into your family. The orphan need for many of us is out of sight, out of mind. And I'm not going to play a heart-stirring video of orphans. But when we don't directly see the plight of global orphans, it often doesn't affect us as it should. We may even be relatively caring people. Our heart goes out to people around us, but we're limited in exposure, perhaps, to the world beyond our four borders. And maybe our hearts need to be broken on occasion by the reality of millions living in poverty on streets or in orphanages with minimal care. I know my heart needs to be broken by that regularly. And adopting or caring for orphans 
in some tangible way is a prime illustration of the gospel. And it becomes more and more vivid as you live it out, I believe. Physical adoption is a beautiful picture of God's adoption of us. When we were helpless, when we were orphaned and undesirable, God reached down. He made us his own. He gave us full status as his children. And the fact that we have the opportunity, if God calls us to be able to to mirror that, to reflect that same grace, is only because of him. Adoption is a beautiful picture of God's adoption of us. So let's be reminded of that. Even in this point, even in this, this test of authentic Christianity, whether we're visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Now my third point, do I keep myself unpolluted by the world's values? Do I keep myself unpolluted or unstained by the world's values? Verse 27 again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself, excuse me, unstained from the world. This last part is really straightforward. James is being very literal in the way he states this. In fact, I tried looking for a a different way I could say it, and really it is literally to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's important to understand what the world is, though, and what it means to be stained by it. The word used for world is cosmos, which could mean the planet that we live on, floating in space, or it could also mean the system of values that is dominated by Satan. I think it's pretty obvious, commentators agree with me on this, that the first one is out. It's not talking about keeping ourselves unstained from the planet that we live on, but from the system of values. We have these sinful values in us too from our fallen nature. And the default state of fallen man is to be influenced by these things. In Christ, we are freed from being enslaved to the idolatry of elevating earthly, unimportant, temporal things above God. We have a new love, a new devotion. And what are some of these things that I'm referring to as sinful values? I believe they really refer to idolatry. The pursuit of prestige or recognition is part of this world system that we need to keep ourselves unpolluted from. The desire for comfort and convenience. The desire and pursuit of pleasure apart from God's lawful provision of pleasure, finding our ultimate pleasure in God, but pursuing it on our own. These are the idols that we are to stay unpolluted from. And I think as, as these other ones are, this is something that James is going to come back to. But in talking about whether we keep ourselves unpolluted from the world's values, I think it's worth bringing up this point. I'm sure you've heard someone say, especially if you've perhaps had a little bit of background in church or a church, you've heard someone say we should be in the world but not of it. Christians are commanded to be in the world but not of it. And while those 
exact words aren't in Scripture. Jesus did pray something similar in John 17. Before Christ laid down his life for his people, he prayed this. John 17, starting in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they, speaking of Christ's followers, his disciples, they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me. Moving down several verses. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them. That you, So Christ is saying, I'm not asking, Father, that you take them, my followers, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's key that Christ brings up the truth of the word of God in the context of not being of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We need to be reminded in thinking of this application of how do I remain unpolluted by the world's values, we need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that there is no goodness in ourselves and we need a Savior who lived a life we couldn't and died a death we deserved. This is what sets us apart from the world we are in. And this is what enables us to live in the world, to live fully in the world, but not pursue it. As authentic Christians, we should have a different nature. We do have a different nature, a different set of desires from the world and the people in it. If we continue to look at the law of liberty, if we are sanctified by the truth of God's word and continue to be changed by it, we won't be polluted by the world's values. We'll see on an ongoing basis our true selves in the mirror of God's word and we'll be doers. And when there is a sinful stain that comes on our hearts, we will rely on the word to expose it and the spirit to help us change. So how to wrap up a text that makes such high demands for authentic Christians? I want the full weight of of James' message to come through to our hearts. But I want it to land firmly on the arms of our Savior. Because we must look to Jesus in light of these demands. Jesus Christ was the only perfect hearer and doer. He said in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He wasn't only a doer, but he finished completely that work. In John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And while James doesn't explicitly state it in this passage, we know the Bible presents Christ as the one who performed for us. He performed for his people So on those three points that we talked about, those three tests of authentic Christians, Christ wielded control of his speech perfectly. 
in a way that we never will. In fact, in the moment when he had every right to speak, when he was unjustly accused and beaten, he controlled, he held his tongue. Christ does for us when we fail to control our speech. Jesus, we know from the gospel account, spent time with and ministered to those in every part of society. From the neglected on the fringe to those who were the religious leaders of the day, from the hated and greedy tax collectors to the dead and dying from disease, from the afflicted to those doing the affliction, Christ spent time with and ministered to each of those. He was with people in their need, showed compassion, and extended loving ministry to them. Christ does for us when we, when I selfishly overlook people in need. Jesus was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, who though he lived on this earth for 33 years, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he stayed completely unstained from the world. In fact, he was able to be a perfect and unblemished sacrifice for sinners. Christ does for us when we are stained as we can be with the values of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. These aren't excuses for any of us to live as we please, but they provide hope for us in our many failings. By our union with Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection, we're continually being transformed into Christ's likeness to become doers like he was and like he still is doing for us. The marks of being authentic Christian ultimately lie in increased dependence on the work of Christ to make us what we're not. And looking back, any true Christian is going to see how he is growing us in these ways how he is increasing the control of our speech, how he is causing us to have more selfless care for others in need, and how he is keeping us unstained from the world. Grace and truth, if we are to live as redeemed people, it means we are increasingly becoming doers. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would carry this word home by your Spirit. That in our hearts you would do and cause to happen in us upon the hearing of this message. I pray that we would start perhaps in new ways today to make application to what we hear, that in ways we are not doing what we know to be right, that you would convict, that you would bring true repentance as a response. Father, you loved me enough to give me this message to preach this week knowing that I needed it. I pray that you would help even the overflow, Lord, of what you are teaching me to be helpful, to be transformational for these, your people, this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for doing 
for us, for being the perfect hearer and doer. And we ask for your help today to apply. May we live as redeemed people by your grace and by your power. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.